today we have uh, Professor Yengis Lam with us. Um, he's our adjunct professor at GI and he used to be the professor of IBES, the predecessor of this department, right? <laughs> um, his topic today is gross fetishism and the future of work, the implications for India. So, please. Thank you, uh, Chair, for your introduction. I don't know whether I can be heard easily. Okay. Um, let me start by stating with due humility that I'm not an expert on the Indian economy. So you might be wondering, gosh, look at the audacity of this person. Here he confesses he's not an expert in Indian economy. He's talking about India. Well, the seminar, um, and I'll tell you how it all happened, the seminar and the paper on which it is based uh, owes its existence to the India office of the ILO. I did some work for ILO India uh, that I completed at the end of last year. The terms of reference were to focus on two distinct issues. How fast can India grow over the next 30 years? And secondly, how significant is the risk of joblessness posed by new technology? And indeed, what kind of transformation in employment structure does that entail? So I bring the two issues together in one paper. Now, I concede it's an ambitious undertaking, but I thought that putting the two together in one paper uh, might actually work. Uh, I'll be remiss in terms of my responsibility if I do not acknowledge the support received from Dr. Shersing Vedic, who was then the Deputy Director of the India Office when the paper was being prepared and finalized. Of course, um, I provide the standard disclaimer. Uh, the views expressed here are my own, and they do not reflect the official position of the ILO. Um, its official position on the impact of new technology and other factors on the future of work will be revealed next year in a report being prepared by the ILO-hosted Global Commission on the Future of Work. This commission is being chaired by the Prime Minister of Sweden and the President of South Africa. Now, you might well ask, why am I focusing on the next 30 years? Why not 10? Why not 20? Or indeed, why not 50? Although all these numbers will come into play. Well, there is a good reason for it. And the reason is up on the screen. In just 30 years, India will celebrate the centenary of its birth as an independent nation. So if for 70 years last year, it will become 100 in 30 years' time. And it's tempting to ask, therefore, where will India be? 100 years is a good enough time to ask this question. Sorry. And will it be a prosperous and rich country? Or to put it less charitably, will it muddle through as a middle-income economy? So what I do is probe this question based on the terms of reference of the ILO's work through two perspectives. One is to focus on future growth scenarios. And the second is to assess the impact of new technology on the world of work, which is commonly referred to as the future of work agenda. Indeed, um, just about every international agency is getting into this game. Um, last, uh, last month, the IMF produced its report on technology and the future of work for the G20. So 
So it's got a policy note for the G20, which it produced last month. And as I said, uh, ILO has a fully-fledged global commission on it. So this is going to be a, a really hot topic. Okay, so how do I go about doing it? Well, as far as future growth scenarios is concerned, I have deliberately constructed a binary divide between two views. I, have, I call it view A, which I shall explain uh, very soon, and then there's a view B. As far as view A is concerned, I see it as a case of robust optimism, and I'm even prepared to call it growth fetishism. Hence, that expression in the title of the paper. An almost religious devotion to try and attain a particular target growth rate. You might call it a China syndrome as well, but, uh, but this is what I call it. <laughs> there you are, you're shaking your head. This okay. And the growth fetishism that is expressed in an Indian context is India can continue to grow in the 7 to 8% range for decades. For decades. It has already got bragging rights because one of the things that it keeps saying is that it has overtaken China as the fastest growing economy in the world. This is a widely held conviction, not just of a few commentators, but of what I call official India, and I'll give examples of official India, plus the World Bank and the IMF. Is the 7 to 8% is what we're after, 7 to 8% is what we will achieve, not now only, but for some time. As far as Australia is concerned, there is considerable enthusiasm about the emerging Indian miracle. Now, trust someone like Greg Sheridan of the Australian to be the cheerleader in this particular case. And uh, there is a, a piece that he wrote in the Australian, which is so funny. I mean, it's, it's, it's really worth reading. Um, by, but, but it's not just Greg Sheridan, who is, of course, a hack as far as journalism is concerned. But the, there is Australian Treasury, which says by 2050, India could be as rich as New Zealand and South Korea today. By 2050. So, if I go further, I tried to identify uh, one report by Peter Vargas, who was the chief of DFAT and now the Chancellor of the University of Queensland, who's, I just call it the Vargas Report on India. It was supposed to come out in March, but I couldn't find a copy. I don't know, Caitlin, whether you could. It you could. Been released. It hasn't been released, so I, I didn't get it wrong. But I'm going, to, I'm going to predict that it will be bullish. Because the Prime Minister wants this to be the report that will provide the foundation for, India, for Australia's economic strategy. And he says that we're not here to discover India but here to try and find out how to engage further. Um, so we'll talk about how can you engage with India without discovering that country, but that's another matter. Okay. All right. <laughs> so let's uh, look at some examples, because I just want to give you a sense of how deeply embedded some numbers are in the collective psyche of even the most influential, the smartest, the most thoughtful here is Raghurajan, or Raghuram Rajan, former governor, Reserve Bank of India, an eminent economist, University of Chicago, former chief economist of the World Bank, former co-chair of one of the major task forces of the G20. And this is what he had to say recently. Without doing anything extraordinary, India should be running 
at 7.5 to 8% real GDP growth a year, he's basically saying that's the default growth rate. It's not something that you strive for, you just get it. And what would you like India to do? Well, you need to be even better. You need to get to 10% growth rate. That's Raghuraj. Well, I then found another observation by Rajiv Kumar, who is the vice chair of what's now known as Niti Aayog, or formerly the Indian Planning Commission. And if you read the statement by Rajiv Kumar, as revealed to Greg Sheridan in an interview, it is strikingly similar to what Raghurajan had to say. And here it is. I think, he says, Indian growth is more than 8% in the long run, and then going on to 10. So 10 is the number. 8 is not good enough anymore, guys. Let's go for 10. That's the kind of aspiration that is being expressed by what I call official India as well. But I, we can't blame quote-unquote official on India only. You go to the forecast of the, of the IMF, and there you go. The magic number 8 comes up in the next 4-5 years. India is supposed to grow at 8%. What about the World Bank? Well, it says the same thing. 7.8 is as damn it as close to 8, you can think of. So there is a, a unity of vision, if you like, as far as growth numbers are concerned. It is 8%. That's the minimum that it can attain and will be attaining over time. But as you can see, these numbers stop around 2019. They stop around 2022. So at some point, I will go further than that. But I'll also take a longer view and ask, well, has India really grown this rapidly recently or has growth been pretty respectable for a long period of time? And, and you know, one of the comparisons that one makes and like to make, and India is really is keen to do that, is to see how does it stack up against China. So I went to IMF data mapper. And in that data mapper, you can plot growth rates going back to 1980 right up to 2022. So that's a long time span. Long time span. The, the solid blue line is Indian economic growth. And the, the light gray on top is China. As you can see, in most periods of, uh, in the recent past, China has over has grown faster, significantly in many cases, than India. But in more recent years, from 2016 onwards, India has indeed acquired the bragging rights of being the fastest growing economy in the world and beating China and saying, take that. That's our way of expunging the memory of 1962 when we had this ignoble border walls defeat. All right. Well, where do we go from here? This is where I think it's important. And what struck me is that there is no attempt at being critical. Those numbers are just accepted. Yet there is a literature which says something else. So what I thought I would do is I would spoil the party mood of the Rajans and the Kumars, as well as all the card-carrying members of the Let's Grow Rapidly Forever Club, and bring in some dissenting voices. And those dissenting voices are Lan Pritchett, Larry Summers, Thomas Piketty. Now, these are not economists that you can simply dismiss and say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. So, the view that I want to highlight is 
beware of illusion and distinguish it from reality when considering growth statistics. And what do we do? Well, the first thing that we find out is that it's unlikely for current growth rates to be sustained. It's very, very rare. And even if that happens in some cases in the last 20 or 30 years, the probability that such growth will continue to happen for long periods of time is less than 5%. Now, you can say that China has done it, yes, but China is the exception that proves the rule rather than the reverse. So countries, including India, according to a provocative paper by Pritchard and Summers, 2014, which I, I think should uh, receive a lot more attention, it doesn't receive that because it's an uncomfortable paper. It says countries succumb to what's known as a regression to the mean. The mean growth rate globally across many countries is 2%. Now, you might say 2%, gosh, that's low, but that's astonishingly rapid in this long sweep of human history. Thomas Piketty the other day I was reading his big fat book, Capital. <laughs> and then I discovered he has a lovely way of explaining why you can expect a secular growth slowdown. And even if you do expect a secular growth slowdown, why is something that's nothing to be worried about. And he gave some numbers which I thought was quite staggering. First, he calculated world per capita growth for 100 years. It's 1.6, which is, if I round it, it's 2%. And then he looked at advanced economies based on data from the Industrial Revolution to, to the modern time. 1.5%. US, UK, Western Europe. That's the growth rate for hundreds of years. So when Trump says the US will grow at 4%, you can comfortably dismiss him as the bearer of fake news because it's really 1.5. It's unlikely to be 4 Asian economies, we have data that goes back a long time, but if we look at more recent data of 60 years, from 1950 onwards to 2012, and all Asian economies 3.1% per capita, per person. Now that's the fastest growing economy in the world for 60 years, and in human history. But the numbers are not mind-boggling of the sort that we keep hearing in the press. 3.1. So, Let's look at some forecasts. So I look at actual forecasts applied to India. There's an OECD forecast going to 2060. And I don't see a flat line. I don't see growth persistence. What I see is a decline, significant, of halving of growth rates of time. If I then, as you can see, so the first phase up to about 2030 or 2025 or so is okay. And then it starts tailing off after 2025. And this is an actual forecast from the OECD. You could say, gosh, how can the projector write up to 2060? Well, they've done it. That's at least one piece of evidence. I've got a second piece of evidence from Pritchett and Summers, and it's this one. Let me briefly try to explain this. So there are a total of one, two, three, four, five, uh, there are a total of four, five, six, seven columns, right? The first two columns, which with the number seven, is what they call growth persistence. This says, if you assume growth will persist forever, or for 10, 20 years, then yes, India will grow at 7. This is on India, by the way. But if you assume full regression to the mean, then Indian growth can drop, in principle, to 2% per capita. However, we're going to be a bit generous and will allow for partial regression to the mean. If you allow partial regression to the mean, those are the numbers that they generate in the last three columns. 
anywhere between 3 to 4.2%. So my propose, uh, my point, therefore, is that long-run Indian growth is going to drop to around 3 to 4%. And do not be disappointed, I say. Because as far as rapid growth is concerned, they are historically unprecedented, even 3 to 4 so that's the point that I'm trying to make. Okay, so where do we go from here? What I'm going to do is switch the nature of the discussion now to, to the world of work and, and so on and so forth, but I will return to this idea of growth. And basically what I would like to say is what a lot of people say is that do not be obsessed with a particular growth rate. Growth is a means to an end and not an end in itself. What matters is not the quantity of growth but its quality. What matters is what can growth deliver in terms of material benefits to the population at large. I'm just reading uh, the other day letters by John Galbraith to John Kennedy. And Galbraith at that time, in the early 60s, was the ambassador to India. And he wrote, Mr. President, people don't care whether it's 3% or 6% if they cannot connect that growth rate to their lives. And that's what really matters, is the ability to demonstrate how does a given growth rate connect to the living standards of the average person. And if that does not happen, then that's just an abstract number that can become meaningless. So growth is a means to an end, not an end in itself. It's a, it's, it's a particular message that I'm going to come back to later. For the moment, though, I'd like to focus on uh, a second part of the paper, which... Oops. Sorry. Is this future work agenda, the impact of new technology and its implications for India. Here again, I deliberately construct a binary divide. The two views ranging from what I call the apocalyptic to the romantic. And as I said, it's, it's a deliberate construction, and like all extreme views, I'm going to discard them and adopt a more middle-of-the-road view, but before I discard them, I need to know what they are, and I'd like to share them with you. So view A basically is apocalyptic. It basically says automation will lead to large-scale joblessness, not just in India or elsewhere, I'll give you some numbers later. But for the moment, let us just focus on this proposition. It's not a new idea, by the way. It's been around for a long, long time. In particular, there was a presidential commission that was formed in the mid-60s under Lyndon Johnson in the United States to explore these ideas. And the prediction was accepted. That yes, there will be large-scale job losses. But the response was utterly refreshing, given what we know about the conservative agenda today. The response was, let us strengthen the welfare state. That was the response of the commission. To me, it's a precursor to the current debate on universal basic income, which basically says everybody is entitled to a universal basic income, regardless of their market status, because we have to cope with large-scale joblessness. So that idea actually was reflected in a somewhat different form during that presidential commission report, which... Is, is, is worth reading, frankly. All right. Now, this whole idea of large-scale technological unemployment was initially limited to rich countries. That was the debate of the rich countries. As I said, something that happened in the 60s. 
and again in the 80s, but it really did not become part of the policy agenda of the low and middle income countries. It's now been extended. This particular notion has now been extended to developing countries, especially by the World Bank and others. And the findings show, for what they're worth, and I'm obviously going to be critical about those findings, that developing countries, and India in particular, are more vulnerable to large-scale joblessness due to automation. More vulnerable than rich countries. And here is this particular graph that has caused a lot of anxiety. I don't know whether they can read that. The top one says, percent of jobs at risk in the world at large, 50%. The OECD average is 57. China is the worst hit, according to this number, at 69. The ASEAN 5, which includes Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, and so on and so forth, at 57. And India at 61. So among the most vulnerable, well above the global average, and above the OECD average. So if you look at these numbers uncritically, and you do not think about it anymore or read about it anymore, then you would say, gosh, that looks, that looks quite scary. In a country where there's a rapid growth of the labor force, lots of people uh, coming into the labor force every year, and that sounds like a scary scenario. This is where I want to engage in a more critical discussion <coughs> of the evidence. I'm going to argue that the estimates on the percent of work at risk of automation focus only on theoretical possibility, not actual outcomes. It says, suppose all those farmers toiling away in the fields of different parts of India could be replaced by mechanization, then what would happen? Well, the more labor-intensive an economy, the greater the scope for automation and greater the percent of workers at risk. And that's one of the reasons why you find the developing countries show that they have higher vulnerability to automation, because technically you can automate just about anything if you wanted to. I'm thinking in particular about, and I don't know whether you know this famous um, uh, uh, lunch delivery services by the Mumbai Dhaba. <laughs> tiffin, tiffin, tiffin. Yeah. Right. I'm saying, gosh, if they were automated, what would happen? Do you know what I mean? So it's possible to automate them. Apparently, the error margin of the manual Dhaba is virtually close to zero. So I don't know whether automated systems could possibly replicate that, but there you are. So there you are. So the more labor intensive an economy, the greater the scope for automation, and then the greater the scope for it. That's what it really shows. So in a sense, it's not a terribly sensible number. Actual outcomes in any case depends a lot on how fast automation takes place. Are the Mumbai, Dhaba, Wallas, and Tiffin Care going to be replaced overnight or even the next 10 years? I don't know. They're still around for a long, long time. And the process of automation is usually slow because of institutional regulatory constraints. And there are, of course, social customs and conventions that can militate against the notion of automation. You can't automate anything and everything that you like, even if, in theory, you could. So I continue with this discussion, and now I would like to, if I may, draw attention to some work that's been done by us on this whole idea of how do we analyze, from the perspective of first principles, this impact of technology on the world of work. So we need to take account of what uh, a paper by Asimoglu and Restrepo say, displacement effect and countervailing forces. There is inevitably a displacement effect. Machines, including artificial intelligence, will displace workers, full stop. 
but that's not the only thing that happens. Because there are countervailing forces. That's the point. And what are these countervailing forces? New technology in production process reduces cost of production. We know that. Think of the clunky mobile phones that cost the, a packet, you know, some years ago and, and how much they are. Think of the uh, personal computers, how expensive they were once and, and how much they are now. So it does reduce the cost of production, improves quality, enlarges purchasing power, creates new sources of demand. Therefore, that's one of the countervailing forces, and more importantly, it creates new forms of complementary tasks, even in automated industries whether it's you know, IT-type computerization and so on and so forth, it creates all kinds of occupations that may or may not exist. The other day I asked my nephew, one of my nephews in the United States, what does he do? He says he's a digital architect, and I couldn't figure out what that was. <laughs> <laughs> so those things do exist, I suppose. So moving on, what is the historical evidence? But the historical evidence suggests the countervailing forces exceed the displacement effect. And the IMF in its latest report on the G20 is absolutely emphatic. And here is the quote from the IMF report. There is no evidence, they claim, of a persistent negative impact of new technologies on the overall demand for labor. This is as true for India as it is for any other country. That's their statement. However, there is a bit of a, there is a big but here. And the but is what Keynes reminded us when he talked about the long run and the short run. He used to say in the long run you're all dead. In other words, it takes a long time for the benefits of new technology to percolate down to the average person. Whoops, am I going back? Let me see. So the adjustment of an economy to the rapid rollout of automation can be slow and painful. I just looked at the numbers that were presented in that paper and followed them up, and I was actually staggered. The Industrial Revolution apparently was a time when it took 80 years, 80 years for real wages to go up. There's a, there's a very famous paper by Allen, and Piketty also documents that in his book. Now, if I turn around and say to someone, you know what, you have to wait 80 years before you get the bed, I'll be run out of this room. So you cannot ignore time and the period of adjustment that's required. Let's come to more recent uh, evidence, the U.S. Hourly real wages in the U.S. have been declined for the bottom 20% and hardly rose for the middle to lower 20% for more, nearly 40 years nearly 40 years, despite rapid automation. We know that uh, labor share has been declining over time across the advanced economies. And we also know that productivity growth has been sluggish. This is the biggest puzzle at the moment, despite automation. We would have thought all this, you know, Facebook, IT, and mobile phones, and so on and so forth, is going to lead to a boom in productivity. It isn't doing that. The US and the UK and other countries are in a rut. Productivity growth in the last 10 years is one of the slowest ever. So these are puzzles to be explained, and we cannot therefore make an unconditional statement that there is no evidence. Yes, there is no evidence given a long enough time, but people are going to suffer in the short run, and 
do not forget the short run because you need the short run before you can go to the long run. That's the kind of view. So what about India itself? So I have said the broader context and I just want to focus a bit more on the Indian experience. As far as India is concerned, like all developing countries, the challenge is not too much but too little technology adoption. And if I take an example of licensed technology, only 4% of small firms use foreign licensed technology. Only 4%. That's very, very small. If I look at robots, the use of robots in industry is very, very limited. Uh, for example, in 2016, 0.9%, less than 1% of the global supply of robots were due to India. And it's expected to rise only to 1.5% by 2020. And so it's, it's, these are not big numbers. There you go, India's nemesis China pops up again. By contrast, five countries, China, Korea, Japan, Germany, and USA, account for 74% of global supply of robots. If you're really serious about robots, go to China, I say. Don't go to India. That's the message. If we look at artificial intelligence, sorry, if we look at artificial intelligence, then India also lags behind other countries, according to the most recent report by Brookings, uh, authored by Ravi and West. And it devotes much less to R&D than China does. It has attracted only a very small amount of financing in AI-oriented venture capital, or artificial intelligence-oriented venture capital. 70% of the research that occurs there is actually non-Indian firms. 62% of research publications are actually coming out of two firms, Google and IBM, uh, with employees working in India. And one estimate suggests that India is expected to capture the, a very modest gain, only about 6% of the large increase in GDP that's expected as a result of the application of AI, and China is expected to capture the most gain. So in these respects, India has some way to go. I now come to what I would like to call view B as far as future uh, work and the digital technology is concerned. And I call this a romantic notion. The romantic notion is new technology can empower and enrich countries like India. This is a, 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 a book uh, which has caused quite a stir by Arun Sundararajan. And he revised an idea that was mooted by two Harvard Business School professors in 1998. And the idea is that, yes, on the one hand, digital technology will mean the end of formal employment. But don't you worry, because it will be compensated by, by a rise of the share economy or the sharing economy, as he calls it. And there's a book called The Sharing Economy and so on and so forth. The share economy is driven by millions of micro-entrepreneurs working through digital platforms. And those professors in 1998, when the internet was just taking off, used to call them e-lancers, and they're now called micro-entrepreneurs. So the share economy is particularly well suited to Indian and developing country conditions for reasons that I will explain soon. If I apply the Sundararajan thesis to India, what does it look like? Well, the conditions are conducive. Why? 
Because in the first place, formal employment is quite limited. The typical estimates are 10%, or the Indian government will say it's much higher than that, but still it's not the majority. Okay? A large volume of work is done informally. India has the world's largest supply of online labor, 24% of global supply. It has a strong and well-established presence in software and IT segment, 54% of global supply of online labor in this particular segment. So it's, it's well poised to take advantage of digital technology-enabled world of work. Good presence of well-known digital platforms, Uber, Ola, Amazon, and if I'm not mistaken, Uber has sold, I think, its shares to Ola uh, recently. Walmart bought Flipkart. Yeah, Flipkart and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's, it's well-positioned in that respect. And there's extensive mobile ownership. 87% of the population are connected through mobile phones. The Indian government itself, it's consistent with the philosophy of the Indian government itself, which talks about what we want as self-reliant job providers rather than job seekers. And by the way, it expresses a sentiment that's rather similar and common in other countries as well, in Malaysia or Nigeria or elsewhere. They all talk about job providers and not job seekers. So self-employment, it seems, is seen as the wave of the future. And because digi digital technology is much more conducive to self-employment, it is in line with the particular framework of governments uh, in different parts of the world. So what I'm going to do next is, once I say, this is my view B, this romantic notion of the rise of the share economy, the, the millions of micro-entrepreneurs that are going to transform the Indian social and economic landscape. And I'm going to obviously sub subject it to a critique. So what I'm going to argue is that, yes, mobile phone ownership is high, but internet usage is actually quite, still quite low. So there is this challenge of inadequate digital infrastructure. The internet usage, according to the latest statistics, is 26% in India, 43% globally. And there's a high digital divide, rural, urban, poor, rich, small, big town, and so on and so forth, which is true not just in India, just about anywhere. So here's some graphs to show you. Here's the, the way. But what is impressive, of course, is the way it took off. In 2000, the internet was virtually non-existent. And by 2015, uh, it's reached a reasonably large segment of the population. But what is staggering, and I'll come back to this idea of mobile phones, is very, very important. What is staggering? mobile phone ownership. Just look at it. <laughs> 2000 non-existent, virtually, and almost universal coverage by 2016. In about 16 years, that's quite a massive transformation. And not just in India, by the way, just about in any developing country you go, the first thing you notice are mobile phones, and I've got a story to tell about that. But, and this is what I want to argue, it's not enough to say that jobs are being created, it's not enough to say people have mobile phones, it's not enough to say people are increasingly digitally connected. At the end of the day, having a job itself is not good enough. It's not true to say that any job is better than no job. What you need to do is focus on wages and working conditions. Otherwise, you do whatever you like. I mean, and, and what you create, therefore, is working poverty as opposed to prosperity. So therefore, I'm going to 
draw attention to two assessments. One, by this paper, which I thought was very well done, is that when they, it's a very balanced assessment. It says, look, there are important and tangible benefits for a range of workers in this particular industry, but there are also risks and there are costs that unduly affect the livelihood of digital workers. So we, we really, it's a debate not about, oh, it is bad or good, but the fact that we really need to focus a lot more on what the benefits are and what the costs are. And this is an assessment from the OECD. Digital work has created many opportunities. Let us not deny that, and we're churlish to deny that, for workers in emerging economies, like India and elsewhere. It has also risked, unfortunately, a race to the bottom in both pay and working conditions. Now, now the OECD, as Colin Brown is going to confirm to me, is not necessarily a <laughs> radical institution. Uh, so, <laughs> moreover, it is likely that a great deal of work it claims remains undocumented, undeclared, fomenting the informal economy. So there is a downside to it. There's a darker side to it. And we mustn't ignore that. So the policy challenge is not to say we don't want the digital economy or we want the digital economy. The policy challenge is how to improve wages and working conditions. There. That is the appropriate response. And if I look at uh, um, sort of evidence from other parts of the world, now there's increasingly evidence coming out. One large-scale study in the United States finds that virtual workers consistently earn less than workers in similar occupations that are attached to physical workplaces. If I look at the UK, apparently 25% of those who work in the digital economy earn less than the minimum wage. I, I dare say, I mean, I haven't looked at it, in Australia you'll probably find similar evidence. And, I, and there is a reason why this is happening. In India, and let me finish this Indian bit and I'll, I'll come back to speculate on the reasons why this is happening. There is no systematic evidence of digital workers, but there are official surveys of those who are self-employed versus those who are in wage employment. And the self-employed consistently fare worse than those in formal wage employment. And the most interesting thing is that people know it. They're much smarter than you think that they are. People know it. Why? How do we know they know it? Well, the two famous economists, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duffler, they wrote a book in 2011 which is created quite a stir among development economists. It's called Poor Economies or something mm -hmm. like that. And there they had a survey which I find absolutely fascinating. They went to a village in Udaipur, India, and they surveyed and asked, well, what would you like to do? What would your children like to do? Well, 75% said we'd rather work in Indian railways, we'd rather be a school teacher, we'd rather be a post office person, 75% of them say that, and very few actually say, we will be digital workers, we will be self-employed, and so on and so forth. So there's a marked preference in India and elsewhere for wage employment, rather self-employment. Yet the government in India and elsewhere are pushing this idea of self-employment being the panacea for the challenge of joblessness. And this is the disconnect, I think, that's very important to, to appreciate and understand. So I want to conclude, if I may, Chair, I think time was okay? Mm -hmm. All right. And the question is, which India matters? Now, I stole this particular line from one of my favorite Indian authors, Pankaj Mishra. If you haven't read him, worth reading. <laughs> which India matters, he asks. And there are competing vision of the future. On the one hand, you've got Jagdish Bhagwati and his disciple, 
Arvind, I think, Panagarian. And that's close to the official view, if you like. And what they say is, growth led by the private sector matters most. We need economic reforms, deeper, more reforms. Doesn't that sound like any Australian government? All right. Now, of course, you have the critics, Jean Dries and Amartya Sen. Dries, I think, was originally Belgian. Belgium. And then he became an, an Indian citizen. Did he? Uh, yeah, he became an Indian citizen. And he's written some fascinating stuff with Amartya Sen. And of course, they're saying, yeah, of course, growth matters, but it is merely a means to an end. And what we really need is that to understand that, yes, India has made good progress in dealing with extreme poverty. But poverty based on middle-income country standards is still pervasive. And I'll show you a table which I find absolutely staggering. Because after all, India is a lower middle-income country with aspirations to become an upper middle-income country fairly soon. And, and then, of course, uh, even better than that. Here is a table. Let's have a look at it. I took three countries, of course, India and China I have to take whenever I compare India. But China is an upper middle-income India is a lower middle-income country. But the country that I decided to take is Sri Lanka, lower middle. I call it the quiet achiever. It doesn't dazzle the rest of the world with high growth rates. But look at what's happened there. Extreme poverty is virtually negligible. Middle-income poverty is about 16%. If you use the lower middle-income poverty cutoff, Yes, upper middle income poverty is, is higher, but they're significantly better than India. And China, of course, is a league on its own. You know, it's just done remarkably well. So when you have a country where between 60 to 86% of the population cannot meet middle income country standards of poverty, there's a huge challenge. There's a huge challenge. And that is the challenge. Let me conclude, if I may, with by emphasizing two points. First, India, like most middle-income countries, has to navigate the perennial tension between the structural realities of today of being a developing country and the aspirations of being a rich and prosperous nation tomorrow. Now, just think about it, what that means. This means dealing with 19th century problems in a 21st century world. I call this a case of smartphones coexisting with a lack of sanitation facilities. I call it a case of obesity in a community of malnourished people. <laughs> I call it a case of a vast informal sector jostling with a small formal labor market. And how India, and indeed any country in that situation, manages its tension will determine its future, and not whether it's 8%, 7 or 10 Second. And that's very important, I also think. The issue of new technology and its impact on the world of work is inevitably seen through the prism of private industry. So whenever you hear about robots, artificial intelligence, all you hear about is the application of these new technologies in the context of private industry. But new technology has a lot to offer in improving the capability of poor and vulnerable people other than through job creation in private industry. There are many different ways that people's lives can be transformed just rather than just by creating jobs in private industry. 
some years ago, and this is a promising part of it, and, and India plays a major role in that promising vision. Some years ago, Kenya pioneered mobile phone banking for low-income communities. It was unheard of, unknown. And that led to the impetus globally of an inclusive financial system movement. India has become a pioneer by creating the world's largest biometric identification system. And one could argue, and I do believe in this, for the first time it is possible for poor and illiterate Indians to have a unique and verifiable identity that does not rely on a driver's license, a passport, and some paper documentation. That, to me, is a liberating experience in many ways. Of course there are, there are problems and concerns and controversies. Critics say we are creating an Orwellian state. But at the same time, to be able to construct a system of unique and verifiable identity for poor and illiterate people is a major step forward and shows the potential of new technology to transform the lives of people in ways that we could not have imagined in the past. And it is on that positive note, Chair, that I'd like to include my uh, paper. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Okay, let's see if we can have uh, more views for A and B. <laughs> <laughs> more views than A and B. Okay. You see, yeah. uh, we have discussed this a lot. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And I, think I don't know whether we've discussed it, let's hear it. Yeah. yeah. One of the, the problems I see is you said about the growth fetishism. Fetishism. Fetishism, yeah. 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 But also, there's also this deregulation, labor market deregulation. Deregulation, that is also fetishism, yeah. Yeah. Yes. You see, in, in, in the past when unions are strong, yes. right, so you have uh, industries that we know that uh, most of the major world industries dominated by oligopolies. Correct. They're not the first-year textbook ideal perfect competitive markets. Mm -hmm. Okay? So In the past, you mean? Or now? Oh, now especially. A lot of oligopolies. Yeah, Facebook is a monopoly. Google is a monopoly. Even now, supermarkets here. Yeah, you go, you, go uh, to, you go to delivery of food. It's yeah. Uber Eats or Federal yeah. or Delivery. Anyway, yeah. my point is this, right? Because of the structure of the economy is changing, as we know, yeah. it's been documented for years, right? As yeah. the economy becomes richer and richer, services become a larger and, and larger yes. share of the economy. Yes, very good. Point. And the productivity growth in services are basically always lower than yes. the productivity growth in manufacturing. It's, mm -hmm. it's well documented. So as your economy goes larger and larger, right, and your, and your productivity growth relies on, in a sense, more and more manufacturing. But the problem of manufacturing is all this uh, te new technology, AI and so on. Correct. It displaces more and more workers, Correct. if you like. Okay? But at the same time, whereas before, you take example of cleaners and security guards and all those people. Yes. They were all employed by, let's say Griffith, for example. Yes. Now they've all been subcontracted. Correct. So if you are hired by the oligopolistic firm, yes. they share in the gains of what economists, economists will say, firm-specific assets. Yes. So even though you, you, know, you, you have very low skill, but because you belong to a firm that earns, what economists would say, above normal profits, so you will you earn, share in it. Uh, you will have a share and you earn above very good point. Yeah. market, uh, you know, normally market. But now, of course, with deregulation and so on and so on, all this subcontracting yeah. going up, so all these low-paid workers are not sharing in the gains, productivity gains. Very good point. So my, 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 in a sense, my, my, my question really, that, you know, in a sense that it's fine about this IT thing, but really the, 
the, uh, the, uh, it is actually a social issue, a policy issue for, for governments mm -hmm. to, to tackle. You know, how much intervention you know, to, to, to target this so that workers could benefit yeah. rather than this, this focus on this labor market deregulation. Let's face it, I mean, your point about this uh, you know, share the what do you call it? Share, uh, share, 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 share economy. They are, they, are, they, are, they are actually mainly very, very service oriented. They have no unions and so on. Yes. So basically, they have an unequal bargaining position yeah. with uh, those only yes, firms. Yeah. Very good point. Do you want me to respond or do you want some one questions? One by one. one, by one. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll start by referring to the work of Eric Postner. Eric Postner, University of Chicago, along with some colleagues doing some fascinating stuff. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know whether you read Vox, which is this uh, online paper, where they summarize this beautiful sort of work of Eric Postner and others, and basically saying what's been happening is that the digital technology has actually deepened market concentration, market power, rather than reducing it. Because only a few, it's, it's the Zuckerbergs of the world that are dominating. And as a result, their market power in the provision of services is being exercised over workers. And one of the tricks of the trade is to convert workers from employees into subcontractors. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that every single IT as a digitally based company does, is that you are a subcontractor. You want to do work for Uber? Be a subcontractor. You want to be part of Fooderoo? Be a subcontractor. You want to be part of Deliveroo? Be a subcontractor. You want to be an online worker? Uh, doing some legal brief stuff for uh, a company in the U.S. become a subcontractor. The first major thing they do is to convert uh, the uh, employees into sub. Immediately, it strips them of all kinds of benefits that they can get under existing industrial legislation architecture. That is the trick, exactly. and it's deliberately done. And I couldn't agree more with you. But the point about Eric Postman is that this is possible because they're able to exercise market power. Yeah not just in product markets, but also over labor. labor market, yeah. And therefore they're arguing that it is this exercise of market power over labor that is the source of wage stagnation in the United States and elsewhere. Their study is basically on the side. And, and so they made this point very, very emphatically. And what I notice is that when I tried to read the IMF, uh, there were a bunch of very smart people. I'm sure they're aware of Postal's work, but they ignore it because they don't want to talk, but they talk about market concentration, yeah. but only in passing and without necessarily making this a major issue, whereas Posner and others are saying, this is the challenge of the digital economy, that it has deepened market concentration, increased the market power of private sector firms, which they can exercise over ordinary workers, and that is the reason why wages are stagnating. So I, I accept the point that you made. Yes, David. When, uh, I mean, talking about the formal versus the informal yeah. economy, and I can recall going in back in the, the, the literature on poverty, on squatters, on uh, hawkers, and so on. Yeah. In the fifties and sixties, was all about how yeah. this was bad because these people were in the informal economy. Yes. They didn't get counted in the GDP figures and all yes. these sorts of things. But it seems like with the world changing the way you're describing it, economics is going to have to come up with some new tools. To look at this, to, to look at this sort of thing, and I see the, the kind, some of the manufacturers from 
going back to Taiwan, Hong Kong, Korea, and so on in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Then they go to China. Will these then go to India? Uh, and some of them, I think, can be automated. But I'm thinking of things such as uh, athletic shoes. Mm -hmm. Athletic shoes are very fussy because you've got a whole bunch of parts that have to go just right onto the shoe. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me it would be a very complex <coughs> kind of uh, Process to try to automate that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is that is is that the way India is going to be able to, in a sense, achieve maybe lower middle class status? Well, it is a lower middle income country anyway at the moment, solidly a lower middle class economy. But its vision is to be far more, and and rightly so. Um, whether it will become a leader in the production of athletic shoes or and so on and so forth, I'm not so sure because there are already existing players in the field and they're doing rather better than India's. And so breaking into that is, 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 is going to be challenging. I think India is, has got a, 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 if I'm not mistaken, a new industrial policy where it wants to raise the share of manufacturing in the total economy from about 14% now to about 25%, 10 percentage points increase. And it would therefore be prepared. There's a whole stack of things. But it is talking more not about these kind of industries so much as the more new technology-based industries uh, where, you know, there is in, where there hasn't been a lot of established players already. So that's the kind of basis, uh, thinking that they have in mind. I don't think that's a primary target for them. If you want to talk about, let's say, garments, well, there's China. And after that, there's Bangladesh. Very difficult to enter now. So you'll have to look for new and different industries. Mm. That plays to its strength. And one of the strengths is IT, services, no doubt about that. Is the service industry in India that has been the success story of the Indian economy. The service industries usually are not fairly low wage. Not necessarily, because it depends. Service industry is not a monolithic entity. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so IT, financial services, and so on and so forth, they're actually productivity is higher than manufacturing. And productivity in the Indian services industry is actually significantly higher than manufacturing. So India is no doubt a leader as far as service industry is concerned. It shows in the global online labor supply and so on. Okay. So as far as uh, those kind of industries are concerned, I don't think that that is what India is likely to succeed in. It's likely to go. And I think it's more service-related industries that it's going to do better. It's good at moving, making movies, the world's largest producer of movies. <laughs> employs a hell of a lot of people. The Indian movie industry produces thousands, out of which Bollywood produces 200 a year, which is far more than Hollywood ever produces. So, movie industry, why not? And there are many other kind of niche industries like that. Colleague? Comments, sorry. Thank you. My, I did a first degree in economics many years ago, but economics and I parted company somewhere around 1975, I think. I <laughs> welcome that. But you haven't missed much. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> First on the side, and now I hope a serious question. On the side, it's as an historian, I love the idea that the ILO has an India office. Yes. I mean, that's redolent of a past, which I trust is not reflected in, in the ILO's current. No, no, the ILO has 20, 40, more than 40 country offices. Yeah, and the no, India I'm, office I'm, is the I'm oldest. Just, I'm yeah. facetious. Yeah, thank you. Um, it would seem to me, by things you haven't said, that all of the scenarios you present, the positive ones, the romantic ones, whatever, assume a degree of stability of continuity of government policy. But how realistic is that in India where, without romanticizing it, the political system is contested? Yes. Um, 
I would have thought one of the strengths of China is that it has that stability, that continuity of government policy, uh -huh. and has that for the last at least 30 odd years. <coughs> Does India, is it realistic to assume that India will have the same kind of government with the same kind of attitudes and policies that others, there won't be a re-emergence re of Nehru's state of the 1950s and 60s, which I presume would stuff up many of these scenarios. So how realistic is it that continuity of policy rests underneath these assumptions? Okay. Just for the... Um, and I was, yeah, for further to, to that. Yeah, I think yeah. in China's case, yes. it's what I would call the Deng Xiaoping moment, that yeah. in Beijing we got this con consensus, consensus that China needs to take on some neoliberal or liberal deregulations. Yes. That consensus lasts yes. for decades. Yes. So in India's case, does it, what, is what, it there? what will happen? Yeah. yeah. I've got India experts sitting here. <laughs> I'll uh, ask Rita to join. Um, and Harsh, if you want to say something, I'd be very grateful. I want to make a distinction between continuity of politics versus continuity of policies. Regardless of changes in government, policies have a remarkable degree of stability. Think of the Australian government. Turnbull are doing things that the Labour government probably wouldn't do terribly differently. Yeah, tweaking at the margin, perhaps. Think in particular of immigration policy. Has the Turnbull government changed immigration policy in any sensible, serious way? No. Its intake is 190,000. Probably was 190,000 in the past, and will be in 190,000 or around that in the future. So policies have a remarkable capacity to endure, and it is as true of the Modi government as it is of the government that it despises of the past. On the surface, there's a lot of teeth gnashing and, uh, and sort of a show of, of differences. Uh, but underneath, there's a great deal, considerable degree of policy continuity. If I look at this construction called Niti Aayog, yeah. which is a name that's been given, it's not. It's just another planning commission, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, with, with indicative planning being the, the key thing. If you look at uh, social welfare policies, not a great deal has changed. So I think that uh, now you threw in another important line, Nehruvian socialism. <coughs> Nehruvian socialism, even the Congress party doesn't want to have. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think that I'm that will... We go back to the yeah, that will not come back. But we have to credit Nehruvian socialism for something. And one of the things that is done is that when you see this current cohort of very smart engineers who do ever so well, both in India and abroad, that's the product of Neoliberal Socialism. All the IITs and then the major institutes that have been set up is actually an initiative of that Neoliberal period. Um, and so, you know, all regimes have a particular role to play. Uh, they'll not come back in the way that they existed in the past. Uh, and I think there is a, a, to coming back to, a de facto consensus, mm -hmm. which is not stated because politics thrives on highlighting differences rather than highlighting commonalities. If Modi says, all I'm doing is tweaking Congress policy, he's not going to get a vote. Uh, it's, it's much better for him then to play identity politics and do other things to make it appear as if it's terribly different from the past. He might be a bit more pro-business than in the past, but then the Congress party has its own favorite business groups. So. I, I think that there is a great deal to policy continuity. Mm. And if you study the actual policy initiatives, they're not terribly different. 
this whole idea of new new industry policy was actually the product of the Congress government, not the product of the current government, but they've just tweaked it or repackaged it, so there is policy continuity. That would be my response to yours. Yes. Yes, Lou. Very interesting. Um, just a, a question. When you're uh, mainly a curiosity question. Right? Yes, please. It doesn't come obviously from any any particular economic expertise, yeah. but when you are making these kinds of forecasts for a country, for for caste-oriented countries such as the United States, um, such as India, mm. um, I wonder if you take caste into account. Caste. And, Yes, when I say caste for the United States, I mean 14% African American. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, you know, it's, it's and in many ways it operates very similarly to, to the caste system in India. And and I reference specifically the work of Sukadeo Torat, um, who headed the Grants Commission for a long time and was at JNU. He wrote a book in uh, in 2009 with Catherine Newman called Blocked by Caste, and it was uh, it was actually an edited volume, but it brought a bunch of people together to look to sort of replicate some of these studies that have been done in the United States, where you take a, a typically African-American name, you send it out with an identical CV to a typically white Yeah, and then you get a different reaction. Yeah, yeah, and, and they did that with, with Dalit names, with Muslim names. Of I course, see what you mean. The Muslims did worse than anyone, the Dalits did second worse, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, I just wonder if when you when you do these sorts of forecasts, do you take those kinds of dynamics into account? Is there a presumption that uh, caste will continue to be less important than it has been in the past? Because we have seen some transition. Okay. Very good question. And I'm coming from Lou, the Indian scholar, yes, and I would expect. Um, Very narrow part of India. Uh, I'm too broad to be useful. So uh. <laughs> um, let me see. This is very... See, this is the point about, this is where I think we should demystify growth figures. They're an average number. Yeah? And more importantly, they're not based on income growth, by the way, regardless of the name, gross domestic. But it actually says gross domestic product. It doesn't say gross national income. It doesn't say income. And all the statistics, China included, are actually drawn from production data. People don't eat production. Production does not generate welfare. People gen- gain welfare from consumption. Production finances that. So if you really wanted to find out what's happening to income, then you'd have to go beyond GDP. That's where I come into the quintile share and so on and so forth. And this is what, there's a lovely paper by, although it's been criticized by Lancel and Piketty, uh, called The Billionaire Raj, 2017. I'll pass it on to you if you're interested. And the billionaire Raj is their expression to differentiate it from the British Raj. And they were saying there's an entrenched billionaire Raj. India has become a much more unequal society than in the past. And so the issue of caste and so on and so forth is best studied in that kind of context. And GDP figures are really not going to give you anything. That's all I can say. So these forecasts are based on an average number, basically production statistics. That's all. And the small fundamental social issues about caste and its impediments and how it affects or your Muslim identity in India and so on and so forth are, are at the very core of, of the sense of India as an issue. And those questions cannot be resolved by focus. That's why it's so very good for a government to say we're the fastest growing economy in the world. You tell them, look, you know, in India you have these problems. We're the fastest growing economy in the world. Look, you know, India has this problem. You're the fastest growing economy in the world. That's a nice way of batting off difficult, complex social issues by simply saying we're the fastest growing economy in the world. Is it the elites supposed to jump up and down just by you know, narrating that fact? No, of course. 
as I'm saying, I keep going to John Galbraith's letters. Mr. President, if the growth rate cannot, cannot connect to the lives of people, then it doesn't mean anything. Yes. Thank you. Uh, first of all, let me congratulate you. Sorry. One should spend the whole lifetime to understand India. But you seem to have done that in the last one hour. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm much more wiser about India than I used. No, no, I, I just offered some illustrations. Yeah. And, and, and it is not very easy to you know, even comment on what you have said on the basis of very limited knowledge that I myself have, and also many have. But there is absolutely no doubt that uh, India's growth and development has been very, very impressive over the last few years, what used to be a completely impoverished um, country has become reasonably, I wouldn't say rich, but well-off country. Yes. <clears throat> so what we need to look at is that what is it doing to India itself? It has created wealth. Uh, macroeconomic picture looks very good in terms of overall GDP and even in terms of per capita GDP. But what seems to be happening lately, particularly as an outcome of new liberalism, and this is not unique to India, and there's a very interesting paper. It says that there seems to be a great fondness and love for macroeconomic figures, particularly by the dictators and by the ultra-nationalist rightist governments. Mm -hmm. So this love of macroeconomic figure may actually mask a lot of the other things that are happening that, below the surface. Yes, absolutely. So that's one thing one needs to look at, and you alluded to some of them, actually. And you also mentioned that uh, you know, like there has been a consistency of economic policies have not changed. I agree, yeah. Yeah, but like Congress and all of the same macroeconomic yeah. policy. Mm -hmm. But there is a relationship between economic policy and politics. Because politics has implication, nature of politics has implication on social uh, issues as well. Mm -hmm. And that itself can actually affect the, how the income gets distributed, how people get disadvantaged or mainstream or otherwise. So that, that's an aspect that one also needs to look at and see while India is growing economically, mm -hmm. how is politics, is to, what is politics doing? to the country and to its people. Yeah. And this relationship is very, very important. Uh -huh. And I think that's something that I'd like to hear from you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have, uh, for example, this picture that you have, 21.1% extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. This has been there for the last decade. So it's a structural issue. Mm -hmm. It is just not an outcome of particular development, but it's a, it's a structural issue. Mm -hmm. And also the other figure that you have, 60, um, 80. And, and this is a new phenomenon, and again, it's not unique to India. It is very common in the new liberalism economic policies that we follow, and these are particularly called rotating poverty. Yeah. That means that you do better. Suddenly, something happens in the economy. You go back. You move back. back. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that portion could be the rotating poverty. Correct. We don't know, but that mm -hmm. needs to be looked yeah. at. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I, there's just so many to talk about, but finally. Let me respond to Mr. Sheridan's India miracle. <laughs> yeah, Rick Sheridan. Yeah. And I think he's very right from the Australian perspective. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment you have about 230 or 300 million middle income or upper income people. And that's a huge market. Mm -hmm. And by the time of 2030, this figure could go up to yes. 400 million. Who knows? Yeah, sheer number, yes. And that's a huge market and money to be made out of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I don't, we don't give a damn about what happens to India inside, in terms of inequality, in terms of, you have not even discussed the kind of impact the India's current economic policies having on environment, mm -hmm. on indigenous people, 
mm-hmm. on inequality. Mm-hmm. But so there's one perspective to take, money to be made, that's mm-hmm. great, we're very happy to go out and make some money. <laughs> the other perspective is as a member state of the world, are we conscious of what was going on? Mm-hmm. Should our businesses be more ethical when you go out to other countries? Mm-hmm. So that's something probably Mr. Shadid would be worried. But maybe some of us should be worrying about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, that's a seminar for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I couldn't, I mean, but you have asked some sort of uh, a lot of fundamental questions, and I'll try and respond to them if I can, with the permission of yeah. the chair. Uh, you said this whole thing about politics versus policy. Uh, when you talk about policy stability, can you ignore politics? Well, my point is yes, the politics looks pretty ugly that masks stability of policies. That was my point. Uh, the politics is, is primarily identity politics. Um, it's, got, it's disconnected from, it's not economics. Other than saying we, have, we are the fastest growing economy in the world, there's nothing else being said. And indeed, if you think about it, if you look at key policy settings, let's take the Reserve Bank of India, which sets monetary policy. The setting of monetary policy in the Reserve Bank of India was actually created by the Congress government. And the current government simply inherited that. What it did was kicked out Raghu Rajan. They didn't like Raghu Rajan. And they put in Urjit Patel, who was Raghu Rajan's deputy, because Patel is one of those persons who will never say no to anything. Okay, and so, and I think Patel is a Gujarati as well, I understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And that makes, uh, for a, a Gujarati prime minister, that, yeah. uh, that itself is a, is a, is a merit-based appointment. Yeah. So, so on all those grounds, therefore, there's policy continuity. And I just give you an example. The Reserve Bank of India is a classic example of, of policy-based continuity. An institution, an institutional framework that was devised by the Congress government, being taken over by the uh, Modi government and running with it. And so there is policy continuity there. But the politics is ugly, it's different, it's divisive. I'm not an expert on it, and this is where Lou can come in, cast and so on and so forth, and I'm unable to say much. So that's the point about politics versus policy. I couldn't agree more. And will policy, will, does, can we ignore politics? Absolutely not. Does it have a major impact on the lives of people? Hell, if you're a minority, yes. If you're from the wrong caste, the wrong faith group, the wrong part of India, life can be tough. So, yes, there's no doubt about that. But as far as policies are concerned, I see stability there. That's all I wanted to say. And I'm simply repeating the point that I did in response to Colin Brown's. Poverty, those numbers there. The reason why I put them up is that, you know, increasingly uh, what I'm saying is that one of the major challenges that India faces is, although it is a lower middle income country, it's still far behind many others. And I would say, although the you know, Indian officials are likely to, be, likely to be offended, I would say, if you want to do well, reach the standards of Sri Lanka. Forget about South Korea. That's, that's what I would say. Sorry? Six Sri Lanka. To see, I mean, that's what the numbers are saying. And so I, I, and, and I, I agree with you about rotating poverty. Basically, what I'm saying is, you know, Extreme poverty, I could, I actually, there is a practice in the OECD. The OECD produces numbers where they talk about people in poverty and people at risk of poverty. So those two columns, 60.4 and 86.8, if you like, are at risk of poverty. Yeah? Or the, the you know, so you, you can go up, but you're still at risk of poverty. So, yes, those numbers can be regarded in that way. 
But I, I, I really think that, um, and I think there's 21% yes now. This is another point that I want to make, and, and my point is, is always this. When it comes to statistics, you're an optimist if you focus on trends. You're a pessimist if you focus on levels. <laughs> Why do I say that? Well, 21%, yeah, still you might say it's unacceptable when China is 1.9 and, and Sri Lanka is 1.9. But the Indian official could turn back and say, ah, Mr. Khan, do you know what poverty was in 1980? That's what he would say. It was 45%, 50%, and brought it down to 21. Won't you give us credit for that? So if you are an optimist, you go for trends. If you're a pessimist, you go for levels. Take a break. Just a Katie. really quick question. Thank you very much, Jan. I also haven't got a fabulous relationship with economics, but you may, you know, you've brought so many things together here. I, I want, I'm really interested by your topic of this fetishism. Yes. And I think we all suffer. You know, very much, that. yes. Um, the G20 really tried to kind of pull that apart a little bit through its emphasis on inclusive growth. Yes. And in particular with a focus on women's economic Correct. Mm -hmm. And I was just interested if the gender, you know, it's a little bit along the lines of Lou's question, but more from a gender perspective. Did you, did you see any notable kind of um, differences for men and women in some of the issues that you're looking at, and particularly the digitization? Yeah. Well, I, uh, when it comes to digitalization, I must confess I, I didn't do any gender segregation, whether it's more female or more male. Um, my, as far as gender is concerned, there is a major challenge mm -hmm. in India. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is low female labor force participation, as mm -hmm. you know. It's, it's hovering around the early 30s, 34% or so, and it really is a major challenge. There is a gender issue there. Mm -hmm. is if you cannot improve lab in female labor force participation, um, in a country of uh, you know, 1.3 billion, there's, yeah. there, there's something to be said about it. But I haven't looked at the, but I'd be happy, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to go and look at the male-female composition. Because these numbers are not compiled. The, the numbers that I quoted you, they have to be accessed and collected from different, different parts. They do, they do not exist if you like, in the statistical agencies of how many are digital workers. Because the, the, the Indian government, as in the case of many other governments, have not caught up with these changes. So the classification, like you wouldn't find, if I went to the statistical yearbook, you wouldn't mm -hmm. find a category called digital workers. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't find that. So and it would be interesting to see yeah. if the future of work is more positive for women than it is now. Very an excellent, excellent point, and this is worth another seminar. I think. You know, uh, I mean, to be very honest with you, I'm, I'm glad that I've instilled some interest, and in that uh, economics is not so bad after all. I think. No? <laughs> oh, there's a question. When I was studying development study, I learned about the case of the state of Kerala. State of Kerala, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. So it has been presented as a. Model state, yes. You know, in terms of its uh, human development, yes. Progress, yes. inclusiveness, something, and yes. so on. Yes. So I wonder whether it is still the case now, and 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 what kind of lessons has yes. it had for uh, India as a whole, and why, you know, uh, all the states uh, are not replicating the Kerala the, the Kerala, Kerala model. model. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> Amartya Sen's work on India essentially ends up talking about Kerala. <laughs> uh, the Kerala is the Sri Lanka of India. It's as simple as that. I mean, in terms of social indicators, that's what it looks like. 
And so because it's a federation and there's a reasonable degree of state-level autonomy, Kerala has, the south part or southern part of India and Kerala itself has evolved in a direction that's a bit different from, let us say, Bihar. Yeah, so, to, so in that sense, in terms of social indicators, it's done well. But the standard story is done well in terms of social indicators, hasn't done well in terms of growth. That's always been the standard story. So there is, therefore, a bit of a trade-off. And that used to be the standard interpretation. But I was in actually in, in Trivandrum, <coughs> in a conference in, in Kerala, and the, uh, the official position there is that, no, we're doing well in growth as well as in social indicators. So the early debate about the trade-off is no longer relevant to Kerala. So yes, Kerala is, if you took Kerala as a country, it would be a, a, an interesting case study in its own right, a, a development success story in some respects, uh, particularly when seen through the lens of social indicators. Is that right? Yeah. That, that's what I wanted to say. Yep. Uh, uh, just to add, uh, I 100% agree with you. In terms of growth here, yeah, we are doing wonderful. Uh, in terms of market, yeah, there is a market. We do have H&M, we do have all international brands. Every day there is something new coming in, in yeah. India. Yeah, market is there. But there are severe social issues. India is going to have a tough time in the next 30, 40 years. Uh, I'm doing one solid waste management project and been to India last year. We produce one Australia every year in terms of population. And in terms of municipal solid waste management, it's a horrible situation. We're going to face severe environmental issues in future, near future. When I go back and see my cousins, some of my cousins have, you know, $100,000 car, whereas there are some people who are having, you know, earning under $200 a month. So that gap is increasing. It's increasing. And when I go back and see, I, I can see severe change. So in terms of materialistic and economic growth, yeah, we can see big malls and good roads and everything. But in terms of social, yeah, there are severe issues. Uh, land prices are increasing like anything. So farmers are selling their farming lands. At the moment, we are facing severe issue of food scarcity. Uh, we do have farms. And I heard that, uh, you know, to have more growth, we are injecting lots of chemicals, lots of chemicals. So if, for instance, if one fruit is that size today, they inject some chemicals, tomorrow yeah. is that big. Yeah. We are eating those chemicals. Mm -hmm. So in the name of growth, there are some se severe issues, health issues, uh, environmental issues, pollutions, and a lot. Yes. So I, it's quite difficult and looking at the size of the country and so it's gonna be a, I think, uh, in terms of social and those issues, it's a tough time, I think. Mm -hmm. It sounds more like the future of China. <laughs> <laughs> Not future president. <laughs> I, would, I would recommend a very interesting book. It's written by a journalist about Delhi. Uh -huh. And basically it manifests itself what's happening in India in specifically, but also overall in many other countries. The book is called Capital, and the author's name is Rana Dasgupta. It's mm -hmm. a fascinating book. Just ca Capital, Capital. Okay. Not K, huh? C, C, Sorry. Meaning Delhi. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Rana Dasgupta is a yeah. very interesting book, mm -hmm. and it's uh, some of the issues that you raised, like the gender issues and all that. But it's done in a very storytelling type of fashion. Oh, beautiful. Okay, capital, Rana Dasgupta. I'll find out about that. He spent about five years in India. Okay. He is based in London. Okay. And he okay. spent five years. Okay. Yeah, 
more or less the same you were talking about. Uh, responding, I mean, Harsha, what can I say? I mean, uh, other than the saying, I, I agree with all your concerns. And uh, it's just that um, all of us will have to do more work in India. <laughs> I, I strongly recommend that you get in touch with Caitlin and uh, share your work with uh, the Institute. All right, time to wrap up. And thanks for your yeah, Everyone, it was a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you.